Coming up on this week's show, two legends of the industry are back with a new game. A retro wrestling RPG. And we talk Game Boy, R-Type and Terminator with Jace Austin. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every single week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, we'll tell you more about their incredible new Go Straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups, featuring more than 200 classic games spanning 37 years. We'll tell you more in just a bit, but you can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And with our friends at PCBWay, who offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do services like 3D printing and injection moulding, and they're big supporters of the retro community. Get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 320, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show. Every Friday, a brand new episode of this podcast, taking you on a journey through the world of classic video games. And of course, talking to the people who made it happen as well. Now, um, I can tell that you're getting ready to go on holiday, Joe. I'm just looking at the uh, our running order here. Intro to the show idea, it says right at the start. <laughs> it's the toughest part of the podcast, it's isn't it? It's the toughest <laughs> part of the podcast. And, you know, I've kind of become, over the last kind of year or so, the guy who kind of puts the spreadsheet together that we've got and put like, the news in there and stuff. And I did add intro to show idea uh, about three weeks ago because we always really struggle with it. But um, it's getting left blank, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, you're off on your holiday day after tomorrow. You're already in holiday mode. I am. I am. Leaving it blank because I'm in holiday mode. I'll put my worst on my way and out of office on as well. <laughs> you, know, you know what, though? I think you deserve a bit of a break, Joe, because you've actually worked your socks off on this week's show because um, I know you and Ravi did this interview with um, Jazz Austin. And uh, this is a really interesting chat because he kind of covers some games. I mean, particularly, I know he was uh, not only a Spectrum developer as well. And um, from what I've heard in there, some Commodore 64 fans might be a, a little bit outraged at some of his comments. You know, there's definitely the old uh, rivalry back in the day. He definitely fell on the Spectrum side, didn't he? Yeah, I think he's uh, one of the first guests to say that the uh, C64 kind of wasn't as good as the Spectrum. <laughs> Controversial oh, boy, opinions. Fighting talk. Yeah, um, but he was, he's an amazing developer because he did a great bridge from that kind of 8-bit game era going into the handhelds and going into the Game mm. Boys. So he took his skill across and Joe... Like I geeked out about 2000 AD with him because he's done slaying and some fantastic games, but Joe really got in there with the Game yeah. Boy stuff. Yeah, it was a, it was a really good chat, and you know what? It really felt like we were just talking to our mate a lot of the time in this one. Yeah, like you say, we had a lot of things in common. Like um, it was clear that he was into metal, and I love metal. And like you say, you were talking to him about 2000 AD comics, so it was really really fun. Um, and he, like you say, he worked on some really big specy titles like Rex. Um, he also did the conversion of Altered Beast. I don't want to worry it too much, but then it was really nice to actually talk to somebody about the Game Boy and the Nintendo and the, like Nintendo because we don't. It's hard to get people who worked on Nintendo stuff, you yeah. know, because obviously because of the language barrier and also because of Nintendo. But he worked. Nobody ever speaks after Nintendo. It's like Fight Club, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he talked. He talked about some really, really big games. He, he did the conversion for R Type. Um, he worked on a lot of the Spider-Man games for the Game Boy, um, and then he worked on um, Terminator Two and Alien Three. Oh, um, that which Terminator was... Two, oh, that yeah. story was absolutely yeah. insane because it, it, 
he had no reference, didn't he? Well, let's not spoil it too much for him, Ravi. But yeah, <laughs> we, we did talk about like, you know, kind of how you do that when before they get the films are even come out and how you kind of get your hands on the script and, you know, the story behind Alien 3 and how the script kept on changing. So they kind of had to keep changing the game and stuff like that. So it was it was really, really, really fun. And like I say, it was great to talk about the Game Boy as well as the Specky as well. So you just need to listen to this interview. To yeah, the, uh, the story say, about Sarah Connor's bangs. Yeah, well, yeah, there's that as well. <laughs> That's a great story. I can tell he's a metal guy as well because I edited this interview, and occasionally you can just hear like his uh, his piercings kind of jangling a little bit and uh, a little sound of metal. <laughs> well, in the well we all know Joe's a heavy metaler, so you know yeah, he was yeah. he's kind of together with him on that. Yeah, vibe. it was right up my yeah. street. Whether it ends up in there as well, but we were we ended up talking a little bit about extreme metal and stuff like that. So, yeah. like I say, it was a really cool interview. Yeah, I think you're going to really enjoy this week's guest, the wonderful Jace Austin coming up on the Retro Hour in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, last week we were talking about the new Mini Amiga, the A500 Mini. There's been such a buzz all over the internet over this over the last couple of weeks. Comes out in shops very soon. I got my hands on one a bit early, and of course I posted a YouTube review of it already. But since I did that, and we were talking about it on last week's show, a lot of people have been asking us questions about it. So I thought, why don't we get a member of the team who are behind the A500 Mini on the show. So we are going to be joined by Chris Smith, the CTO of Retro Games Limited, who's going to be coming on for a quick chat about the new system and to answer some of your questions. He'll be coming up in just a bit. Before that, though, we need to talk about this. Now, I must admit, I was quite a big fan of wrestling games when I was a kid, but I've never seen a wrestling RPG game before. This this looks crazy. It's uh, by Mega Cat Studios, who we've actually had on the show before and uh, Skybound Games, and it's it's called WrestleQuest, and it's like a kind of Zelda-style Final Fantasy mixed up <laughs> with wrestlers. Uh, what do you think about it, Joe? It looks really, really interesting. Like you say, it's, it's kind of like, it, it does actually look like a cross, cross between like 16-bit Zelda and Final Fantasy, like 16-bit Final Fantasy, because it's got like the top-down kind of worldview going into like, I want to say cities but obviously it's like wrestling like stadium like stadiums and stuff like that but then when you go into fights it's a turn-based rpg with like three characters you know fighting other wrestlers and stuff like that and it's really captured that kind of 16-bit feel and it's got like funny enough it's got like a heavy metal soundtrack as well which i absolutely love from the trailer but it just looks crazy we were talking about it before dan was like for the intro like is this the first ever wrestling rpg <laughs> it's gotta be it, it could well be it must be in this sort of style and you know i'm not a, i'm not a big wrestling fan like i always enjoyed it when i was a kid but i didn't like follow mm. it or anything but it looks like they've got the rights to a lot of the big wrestlers from like the 80s and 90s so there's like uh, andre the giants on there and randy savage is on there and um or jake the snake jake the snake and oh, i'm i'm gonna oh, what's the name of the guys with the red spikes on them, oh, the two this, brothers. This shows on uh, like wrestling knowledge isn't amazing. I, I just remember Scotty Too Hotty and the you know, Undertaker. Hottie, yeah, Undertaker. <laughs> They're not the in it. Legion of Doom or the Ro- Road it. Warriors. That's it. That's it. There we go. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dan. Right. Um, that, Daddy Haystacks, it. isn't it, or Giant Haystacks? But yeah. <laughs> But they're all like the bosses in the game and stuff like that. So it looks <laughs> looks really fun. It's coming to um as always, it's coming to them all. It's coming to the Switch, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, uh, and also Steam. And like you say, Rav, it's coming from Mega Cat Studios, who always have that really like fun kind of sixteen. Yeah, it, feel it reminds to them. me of uh, Broforce if you've ever played that game. Yeah, yeah it has these ridiculous intros and stuff like that. And you know, even the kind of splash screens look really broforcey. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they've not given a release date yet. Um, so we've got to keep our eyes on that one. But it just looks insane. It just looks fun, like, you know, full of energy um, from the trailer, just like really over the top fun. Like they know they know what they're doing with it as well. Do you know what I mean? So, and like the moves in the game as well are all like really silly wrestling moves and really like silly names to them. Stuff yeah, and like it looks so, like you can upgrade them as well and you can actually yeah. have people join at any time. So it'd be like, you know, a new challenge has entered and you can probably do like four player just like in Broforce or something or do like tag team wrestling as well. Yeah, it looks really fun. And you know, with certain games, you just watch them and you can tell the developers had loads of fun making it. It just looks like that, doesn't it? You can imagine they're having such a laugh when they're putting this together. Oh God, yeah. And, and that's what I was trying to say, like, they know what they've got so they have fun with it and they run with it do you know what i mean that's just seems like what they've done with it like you know okay we've got this really over the top 80s 90s idea and we've actually got some cool licenses here so let's just have fun and make the most of it wrestlefest was always a one for me when that came out in the arcades it's a great arcade game uh, but what randomly actually i remember you know wwf was big then i remember it just being like a, the biggest thing in the world at my school but for that it, it year. It was like FIFA as well, wasn't it? There was a new version that would come out every time. Uh, I think it was WrestleMania. That was a really big game. Yeah, there was, for, for, there was a lot of WrestleMania games in like the 16-bit era. But for me, it was the PS1, PS2, because I had a lot of friends who were into wrestling and they had all the SmackDown games. Ah, um, uh, yeah, SmackDown. There was loads of SmackDown games. And now I think they just, they just from around about 2006, 2005, they just started like, it's WWE 2006, 2007, and now they just put a year on them. Um, but they always had like a SmackDown 3. Oh, I can't remember the sub names for them, but they always had like a sub name. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Colon then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I um, just I'd... loved uh, customizing the characters on those games and making the most ridiculous characters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Seeing who would win. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's cool, cool that um, they've got the IP here. So, looking forward to that one. You know, when WWF was at its peak, though, we used to play at the school playground. And I'm sure that to this day, I've got a bad back because of my friend doing the Boston Crab on me back in 1992. <laughs> so. I, can't, I just can't see it because you're such a geek. <laughs> I know. He used to get really nerdy about all the stats and everything, though, my friend. Oh, yeah, that's right. amazing. What, what's, I think he just wanted to beat me what, up. What's their height and their reach and stuff like that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least I can play this and not get injured. So, yeah, yeah exactly. it's pretty good. Now, we did talk about the A500 Mini on last week's show. Of course, the new Mini Amiga is here and landing in shops this month. And actually, we thought, I'll give my little review about it at the start of last week's show. Oh, I, I really video. enjoyed that YouTube video, yeah. Yeah, well, I kind of go deep into it. It's like 35 minutes long if you want to check out my uh, uh, in-depth look at the new Amiga Mini. But we thought, actually, to kind of get it from the horse's mouth, why don't we get on um, one of the guys who were behind the A500 Mini project, you know, to kind of give us a background on this, because, you know, it's one of the biggest things that's happened in the Amiga scene for years. So let's welcome on Chris from Retro Games Limited. How are you doing, Chris? I'm really well. How are you, Dan? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, now, obviously, you guys will know just what a buzz there is around the A500 Mini right now. I mean, I remember there being a good reaction to the C64, but, you know, now these um, YouTube reviews are out there. Just the reaction on this just seems next level. I don't know what you guys have kind of thought of it. Yes, um, personally, it's 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 kind of taken me by surprise. It's the, the, these products are a lot of work and they take a lot of time to kind of to to get going, and um, you kind of become a bit numb mm. towards the end. I mean, you know you know what they can do. You know the blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into them. You're never quite sure how the public are going to take them. And the 64 range that we did was really you know really well received. But yeah, we're we're astounded and we're really excited by the 
by the buzz, as you, as you put it, that we're, we're now hearing around the A500 Mini, and it's it's barely out. So it's it's fantastic. It's really, really fantastic. You know, it's funny. I've got friends who I used to play Amiga games with, you know, got 30 years ago, and that makes me feel old, who have uh, actually got in touch with me on Facebook again, going, oh, when, when's this thing out? I really want to get hold of one. You know, people that probably haven't thought of the Amiga for 30 years are now getting interested in it again. Yeah, that's, that's, that's something that we've kind of, we didn't anticipate that when we did the 64 stuff. But we've seen people buying them and just reliving their youth through it but also the developers developers are are, are, it's kind of spurred off the little indie developer market really where people are now producing new games and releasing them because they've got an active community out there that are actually using the 64 mini so so we're expecting that kind of stuff to be happening with the the a500 and we're getting a lot of feedback and it's just it's fabulous to, to hear people being energized and we just we just hope it's going to it's going to build the community back up and and keep the Amiga community going from from strength to strength really because it's you know they um, they don't make them like they used to. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, what is it about the Amiga that you think kind of holds it in such high regard? You know, in in the retro community and for gamers in general, because it was a really special system, wasn't it? I think for a lot of people, it was that first bridge. It, well, it was that and the ST, I guess, at the time um, was really like the first sixteen bit conversion really everyone was you know, used to get eight bits and everything went up a notch particularly with the amiga with its graphic and audio capabilities and i think it brought people closer to what they they saw in the arcades yeah. but in the comfort of their, their their own home and it was it was next generation from what people were used to with the Commodore 64 on the spectrum the ataris and that kind of thing so i think that's that's why it's it's that it's that first introduction and it kind of stays with you and I love the work that, you know, you guys at Retro Games Limited are doing. I mean, I'll tell you when I, because I think you're really helping retro gaming come into the public consciousness. Because my mum, who's like, you know, she's not into this stuff at all. But, you know, when the 64 came out, she, she actually messaged me. She goes, that thing you used to have in a kid, as a kid, you know, they're selling it again now. I've seen it in a shop in town. And I was like, that's when I know if it's on my mum's radar. That is when it's really getting mainstream, I think. So, uh, you know, that is incredible that you guys are doing that. But I've got, I've got to ask as well about the Amiga in particular, because I remember thinking how incredible it would be to have like an Amiga where you could, you know, get all your retro games loaded on, hook it up to your modern telly. I've been wanting something like this for at least 15 years, but everyone said it couldn't be done. How have you guys finally made this happen? And has it been a bit of a challenge? It has been a challenge. Yeah, I don't. I think we we probably couldn't have done it if we hadn't have done the sixty four first because mm. we learned an awful lot, and we built some really great relationships with the manufacturing uh, people that that we use out in out in China. And um, I mean, they they make a lot of, um, I guess, third party game controllers and all that kind of stuff. So they're in they're in the, the gaming sort of field, but I don't think they've ever made a unique product or an original product, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, but they get it now. They get it. So they've been invaluable sort of partners in terms of helping us with, with some aspects of the hardware design, electronics and, and that kind of stuff. But also the licensing, that's really been quite, quite tough. That's uh, Darren Melbourne's our licensing director and um, um, he, he pretty much exclusively works in this field. Um, so he knows he knows a lot of the people and, and a lot of the the chain of title basically on, on a lot of these on a lot of these games so there's an awful lot of work that we've had to do in tracking down you know a clear chain of train of title for these and because people don't keep records they've yeah. never kept records um and even with the likes of people like team 17 they haven't nest so they've got their own titles and stuff which they can just let us use are fantastic but some of it was a uh, bought-in licenses from from other developers, etc. Mm. So unless they've got like sign-off or or it's clear 
that they're allowed to uh, redistribute these things you know, 20, 30 years later. Um, we've kind of got to stay clear of it. So so that's been quite tough. And also the the technology, actually getting the emulation, because of course you, I think everybody understands that we, we do it through an emulation, yeah. not through a pure hardware um, solution. Again, that's, that's down to cost, and that's also down to um, user expectation. If we did it in pure hardware, um, it would pretty much all the user interface and all of those things would look like an Amiga. And we'd have to get HDMI in there and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's actually a, um, harder and you end up with a more limited product yeah. um, if you do it in pure hardware, which is something I think a lot of people kind of miss when they say, well, you know, why isn't it FPGA or, or an, an ASIC-based thing? Because um, people want the user interface they see on Netflix and that kind of stuff, the scrolly carousel and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's what, makes it accessible it's certainly what we've got as a design mantra really is to make it simple make it accessible make it fun yeah you're right um, i think you know you're setting up like win uae and that kind of thing there are so many options and different files you need to load in and to me the, i mean I, I said this on last week's podcast that this really feels like an Amiga for console fans as well, something that's going to be accessible to those who maybe grew up with the Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo, but they've always been quite curious about the Amiga, but found it a bit too complicated to delve into before? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are different users. There are the, the Power Amiga users who have several Amigas, um, and they've also got maybe a Mister, and they've got several Raspberry Pis, and they run RetroArch and all that kind of stuff. Uh, these, They know what they're doing. You know, and they want all the low-level little switches for tweaking this and tweaking that. Um, but then on the other end of the scale, you've got uh, people who remember the Amiga, want to relive the Amiga, replay the, the Amiga, but they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the time mm. to go setting up a Raspberry Pi and that kind of stuff. So it's kind of that, it's more that end of the spectrum that we're sort of aiming for because if it suits those users' needs, it'll also serve the needs of the more power users when they're not looking to do something in the power domain, if, if you know what I mean. If they just want to play some games, they want something that's really simple. They can take over a mate's house and not have to worry about downloading anything or faffing about with a Raspberry Pi, then, then they can. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, so it is in that area. And, and again, like, so we've remapped all the 25 games that are on there. We've remapped them for the gamepad that we've supplied in there, but we've done so using what, we see as being how modern games and modern consoles map the controllers so that even if you've never played an Amiga game, if you're familiar with picking up a gamepad and knowing which button to press to start the game or to fire, all that kind of stuff, um, that should just happen. Yeah, so that's the kind of domain that we're trying to do everything in, really. It's, it's that end of the, of the scale. Was there a conversation around whether you should include a pad or a joystick? Because I know I've seen a lot of people online, you know, it seems about 50-50. And I, I think the pad's really comfortable, actually, and I think it makes sense for, you know, more modern-minded gamers. There were several angles to that. There, um, We had some experiences, of course, with uh, the joystick that we, we put in with the, the Mini. And now we've got, we've got two variants of the MicroSwitch joystick, which um, people seem to love, which is great. So we had the option of putting that. We'd already developed it. It was ready to go, basically. But then we felt we went out and we, we spoke to a lot of people about, well, what would they expect to be packaged in it? And some people said quick shot joysticks. Some people said quick shots. There's a whole plethora of, of what people demanded we supplied, basically, with it. Mm. Um, and there was no clear winner. Um, and it, it was obvious why not, because the, the, uh, the Amiga didn't ship with the joystick. Yeah. There wasn't an official joystick for it. The nearest there was to a, an official joystick was the CD32 pad which 
as soon as we started looking at it, we got a little bit concerned because it was quite well hated, really, mm. for mainly for ergonomic reasons. I mean, it wasn't a bad design as such, but ergonomically, it's a bit big. The D-pad was terrible. The buttons were spongy. There was, there was lots wrong with it. Um, but as an idea, it was it was quite valid, I thought. So we thought, well, what, what if we did a pad? Because, it, again, drawing on the experience from the 64 stuff that we've done, we know that a lot of younger generation who are coming to that product um, struggled a bit with the joystick because it wasn't what they were used to. But they were absolutely fine with picking up a, uh, picking up a game pad. Mm. So those kind of three elements, really. Um, Try to make it look like it, it's, it would be what they should have released when they did the CD32. Yeah, it's a lot more comfortable than the original CD32 controller, 100%. <laughs> Um, yeah. I mean, there have been a few people asking for, you know, other features. I know a lot of people online have been asking if it's going to support um, ADF disk images at any point. Is there any plans to kind of add that into there? Yes, basically. Um, so we're always we're always looking to add these these kind of things in. The um, for us the, the main the main drive was to get something that just worked. And, and disk swapping, disk doing disk swapping means you have to introduce some sort of user interface elements to allow people to navigate a selection of disks which are in that game set. Um, and that that's quite challenging. There are various ways of doing it. And um, in terms of sort of priority, I guess, um, given the wealth of um, already converted um, WHD low titles there are out there, it wasn't at the top of the list. So it was something that we kind of um, relegated to, the, to the, uh, the firmware upgrade list. And it also gives us the opportunity to spend a little while, you know, a couple of months or whatever, taking a look at the feedback and, and the support calls that we've been receiving, um, actually do what what it, it transpires that users need as opposed to projecting what we think they're going to need or want uh, and then spending the time and money on that. We'd rather target what people are, are either highlighting our issues or gaps in the functionality such as ADF support. ADF support, though, was, to be honest, a bit of a no-brainer. Well, another question that I'm seeing everywhere, and you know, a lot of people have been asking me this after my video, um, is you obviously did the Maxi version of the 64 with the working keyboard. Any plans to do a, a Maxi A500 with a, a workable keyboard at some stage? Yeah, um, it won't be an A500 um, because that would be a, a beast on the desk, really. So we'll probably uh, choose a, a slimmer or a, a different form factor for it. It's harder to judge what the market would be for it. So as long as we can make it financially viable, as long as we, you know, we're not making a loss on it and there's enough to keep the company running for the, towards the next product, um, it's something we'll definitely look at doing. Wonderful. Well, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on things then, Chris. You know, it's, it's always exciting seeing new developments from you guys and uh, just the fact that, you know, we, we can walk into a shop and pick up a new A500 in 2022, I think, is an incredible achievement. So uh, a lot of people want to get hold of them. How can people get an A500 Mini and when are they available then for everybody to get? Well, um, the stock's been slightly delayed um, because of uh, shipping issues, basically. So it goes on general retail globally, apart from North America, on the 8th of April. And I believe currently uh, the US, North America, is slated to be May It'll be available. I think it's the end of May. Those those dates are really fluid. They come back sometimes and then they get pushed back again. It's uh, it's just the logistics of getting it getting getting the lorries now across across the states to the retail warehouses, etc. So um, yes, yeah, so, so but for pretty much the rest of the world, uh, the eighth of April. 
Wonderful, Chris. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, best of luck with it. And uh, like I said, just amazing work to say. Congratulate the team there on our behalf. I'll do that. Thank you. Now, we are going to be chatting to a legend of the industry, getting some stories about the Sinclair Spectrum development days, going into the Game Boy as well. Lots of chat about some legendary games on both of those platforms with Jace Austin, our special guest, coming up in just a bit. And we need to talk about the return of Ken and Roberta Williams, who are back with a new game that looks absolutely incredible. Before we do, though, there's some um, Sega Game Gear stuff that we're going to talk about in a second. And that ties in quite well with... Our second podcast. Did you know that we actually don't just do the Retro Hour? There is another full podcast that we do every month. The Retro Hour After Hours. I did know that we do it. I did know that we do it. <laughs> yeah, because you're on it. Because <laughs> I'm I wasn't on asking it. you, Joe. I was asking the listener. <laughs> but yeah, that is our exclusive patron-only uh, podcast for our gold members and above. But we did a really, really fun one uh, this month where, like you say, it links in quite nicely, where... We spoke about our top five handheld games. So in the past, we've done like top five Mega Drive games, Super Nintendo games, but we had to go for top five handhelds in general because if we just did our uh, top five handheld consoles, then it might have been a bit of a struggle. You know, we might have had to start <laughs> putting about like, five there is only, them. you know, so many of them. We might have to start putting, you know, Tiger Electronics in there and stuff like that. Don't give away Ravi's number <laughs> yeah, one. No, God, you don't know what I've chose. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Really, really fun one that was, and it brought up a lot of memories from, you know, playing Game Boy Advance at school and also playing Game Gear, you know, at school and stuff like that as well yeah. for me. And uh, yes, links, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. We all love the links. So if you want to hear that, I mean, that is available now. New episode for this month of the Retro Hour After Hours. You can get that uh, by joining our Gold Tier Above on Patreon. And also, now that we're into April, we have got another Hangout coming up soon as well. We do these every month. Yeah, I, I love the Hangouts. You know, we, we all get together and it's kind of like the Brady Bunch. We're all on the screen. And, uh, <laughs> there's about 30 of us and yeah. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Yeah, and uh, everybody's kind of eyeing up stuff. Like we had someone join the other day and they had a collection behind. So we were kind of going, oh, what have you got there? And somebody spotted some Dreamcast games and stuff. And, you know, it's like a kind of pub chat. We all get together. We all discuss stuff and uh, share a lot of knowledge and kind of repair knowledge as well. It's nice to see as well, we've been getting quite a lot of people joining for the first time. Quite a lot of people from America coming on recently as well, which is, you know, nice to see people from all around the world joining yeah. us as well. And we're a very welcoming community. You know, so if, if you've ever thought, oh, that sounds fun, but I bet, you know, those guys are all established and everything. We welcome new people in every but, single But we week, won't we? just put everybody on the spot as well. You can go yeah. on without your camera and kind of just lurk yeah. and listen. Yeah, some people just sit there and watch. It's like a two-hour discussion as well. So, you know, however you want to get involved, we'd love to have you part of our Retro Hour community on Patreon. And, of course, for joining us on there, you will get a shout in. The most prestigious high-score table in the world of retro gaming. I still haven't done any music for this yet. Next week, definitely. <laughs> the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you so much to our latest backers on Patreon, the wonderful Matthew Mobes. Banked City. Carrie Clayton. Timothy and Darren Coles, who he's always on the uh, Patreon, isn't he? He is, and he just renewed for a new year on Patreon. Thank you so much, Darren. Much appreciated. So if you'd like to join us on there as well, of course, not only do you uh, get invited to all that stuff, but also you get the usual podcast ad-free, extra content in there every week. You sometimes get it early, you know, and get it edited in time as well. So if you'd like to join us on Patreon, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Now, you're off on your jollies at the end of this week, Joe. Have you got anything cool to wear? Cool to wear? Um... Not as cool as if I had a Game Gear t-shirt or a Game Gear hat, 
But, you know, I have got some good clobber, but I am missing Game Gear stuff, and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. You need some Game <laughs> Gear gear. <laughs> so, um, obviously, we've done our After Hours episode all about handhelds. So, you know, this is just... Handhelds seem to be like... In every week's news stories at the moment, they seem to be back in vogue again, it seems. Uh, and the Game Gear, it's nice to see that getting a bit of love, obviously, from Sega, you know, mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, that tiny little one they made. But now, um, there is actually some new Sega Game Gear merch in town. Now, um, this is from Sega Shop Europe, so this is official Sega merchandise celebrating the Game Gear. Yeah, like, like you say, it's, it's interesting that they're giving the Game Gear so much love, and apparently it's once again to do with the 60th anniversary of Sega, um, yeah, rinsing this up. They are rinsing this. I'm sure that was last year, like last summer now. Um, but they've got some pretty cool stuff. They've got the Game Gear official hat, snapback hat, which is a black hat with the logo on. But I really, really, really like it. Um, they've got two different Game Gear design t-shirts. So I've got a black one and a white one. And the black one is just kind of like a an 8-bit picture of the Game Gear on the front, which I think is pretty cool. And then the white one is kind of like more like, it's got that kind of like Master System Game Gear you know, the, the grid print on the T-shirt in the background. And then it's got, like, different, like, views of the Game Gear, which is really cool. And then they finish it off nicely with an enamel pin. But it's, it is nice that it is from Sega, like, it's official Sega gear. Like, not to say, like, you know, when other websites and stuff sell it, it's not licensed by Sega, but it's from their website, which is pretty cool. And it is nice that they're they're showing that love for the Game Gear because of, you know, not to say it was a flop, it did get smashed by... Game Boy. You know what, though? It seems like, you know, they have been kind of not giving it their main focus, but actually, you know, concentrate a bit more on the Game Gear. You know, it would be amazing if, like, Sega released, like, a Game Gear collection for the Switch. Yeah. so well on there. Yeah. That's, that's that, a really good idea, actually. That is a really good idea, actually. Have that one on me, Sega. Do it. <laughs> there you go. There we go. We don't... He doesn't He doesn't need any royalties or anything. Just do it. <laughs> Send me a free copy. We'll call it even. <laughs> I love the comments as well um, on Nintendo Life's website. Someone talking about this Game Gear merch, talking about the T-shirt in particular. He said... Uh, the back of the Game Gear T-shirt should just show a massive pile of used AA batteries. That would be hilarious. <laughs> just yeah. like 20 batteries just there. That would be funny. Well, you should have add-ons for the hat. Like, you know, you had all these crazy accessories. <laughs> TV tuner and stuff. Yeah, yeah. TV those. tuner on the side of the hat. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, if you are off on your holidays and you want something to uh, look sharp in, uh, you can get involved in this now. They are available. I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, during lockdown, I think... Um, a lot of us kind of spent time doing different things, didn't we? Some people were very productive in lockdown. Other people like me kind of binged everything on Netflix. Um, although it seems like two absolute legends, we're talking Ken and Roberta Williams, the founders of Sierra, were actually very productive in lockdown. And they're actually making their first new game together in more than 20 years. And it's actually based on a classic franchise from the earliest days of video games. This is Colossal Cave 3D that's now coming to virtual reality. It's it's pretty amazing, this is. We've had so many guests on the podcast that have kind of talked about, you know, mainframes and how their kind of roots were in a Colossal Cave adventure. And yeah. Uh, that came out in 1976 as well. So, you know, it's a really early on text adventure, probably the foundation to many people's video game development. And, you know, Ken and Roberta are amazing from Sierra. They've done some top adventure games. So kind of taking this and turning it into a 3D environment uh, seems like a winner. Well, we had um, Ken Williams on the show, didn't we? 
yeah. Uh, probably about he mentioned at the end that he was doing a project. He did, yeah. So this obviously is a big thing that they've been working on. Uh, but this is um, yeah, Colossal Cave 3D. It's not just, uh, obviously, it wasn't a Sierra game originally, oh, no. but actually they took that thing that they, you know, they loved. And obviously, like you said, you know, started an entire industry pretty much. So they've actually completely recreated the Colossal Cave universe into a fully immersive 3D virtual reality environment. So you can actually explore the caves in VR. And they reckon this is going to be a, a for the family experience as well. So they've spent, you know, over two years making this. And apparently they're going to be showing some demos at GDC, which has obviously been on this week. So maybe by the time the show comes it's, out, there'll be a bit more out there. It's a really amazing concept because I, I went and I tried Colossal Cave. I actually went to the uh, Computer Museum in Cambridge and I was on a mainframe terminal. And yeah. uh, an assistant came up to me who was kind of working there and he was like, oh, um, you need the map. <laughs> it kind of showed me the map and it was like telling me how to get there. And he said, you're not going to get beyond this point and stuff. So like it needed a map to be explored and a kind of visualization of it. And having this in 3D is going to take that to a whole next level. If you've been looking at that map for years and it kind of follows the same route and the, the same idea, I think it would be really fantastic. It's an interesting point there because, you know, a lot of text adventure games and stuff, I'd play them, but obviously you kind of, you create a picture of them in your mind. Yeah, yeah. Don't you? So, so being able to explore these places that you've imagined for, God, well, over 40 years, you know, people have played it originally as you get to experience that in VR, that must be pretty mind-blowing, I if, if they do it right, which um, I'm yeah. pretty sure they will because they're quite experienced at this. You know? Yeah, just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to see, uh, there's actually some, some uh, screenshots and in-game artwork available now, and uh, they've got a website, colossalcave3d.com, and, of course, I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, of course, we love beat-em-up games, and we love bitmap books. Is there a better marriage, Joe? There, there isn't a better marriage. I absolutely love the look of this. So this is um, Go Straight. And I've been very, very, very lucky to get my hands, not on the book, but a PDF. And I've had a little read through it. I don't want to spoil it too much because I want to get my hands on the book. But this looks like, to me, this could be Bitmap Book's best book. I mean, it's right up my street. I'm not going to lie. It's your I'm, genre, isn't it? It's really? my genre. <laughs> I'm going to be biased. I absolutely adore beat-em-ups and I absolutely love what they've done. They've kind of broke it down into, essentially into decades and kind of like the entire history of beat-em-ups and there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games in here and like, it's nice and simple. It's easy to read. There's a bit of information about each game and then obviously the beautiful, beautiful pixel artwork they've got in there. But honestly, just like just reading about games like Final Fight, Streets of Rage and just the history of it, you know, all the way back to like Kung Fu Master and stuff like that is just absolutely incredible. So I can't I wait love, for this one to come out. I love that it's going up to modern days. So, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of from the whole history of it, really. 37 yeah, years. yeah. It goes it goes all the way up to 2021 and just like where beat em ups are today, because obviously it's not anywhere near as popular as it was in the 80s and 90s you know, like Golden Axe and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's still a well-loved genre and there is, you know, a lot of indie games and stuff like that which are out there. So it covers a lot of that as well. So it's awesome. It does feel like it, it is a genre that's on a bit of a comeback at the moment. Yeah. yeah, especially like you said, in the indie kind of scene. I mean, I think Streets of Rage 4 yeah. kicks out a lot of that. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so it just covers so much in here as well. Over 450 pages. And it takes a deep dive into all the games that you loved playing as a kid. Double Dragon, Golden Axe, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Of course, a new collection of that coming out soon as well. Including a lot more of the obscure brawlers. Actually, after reading this, you might want to try stuff like Shadow Force and Gaia Crusaders. And as well as reviewing every game, they also give you hints, tips and level guides. And, you know, a little guide on which enemies are coming up as well. So you can actually play the games better. It is a real celebration of how these games looked packed with screenshots, sprites, level maps, all presented to their usual high standards. So if you're a fan of beat 'em up games, you need to check this out. You can get it right now on their website, Go Straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Right then, next, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the world of ZX Spectrum development and talking about the Game Boy as well, and some incredible feats that our guests this week did, including getting stuff like Altered Beast running on the ZX Spectrum, which is just mind-blowing. And Rex as well, I mean, God, that is one of the most impressive Spectrum games I think I ever saw back in the day. And also stuff like, you know, these big license games, Terminator on the Game Boy. We'll find out all about that with our special guest, Jace Austin. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour, and we're here today with Jace Austin, who's coded for the Amstrad Specky even done some amazing stuff for the Game Boy. How are you, Jason? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Cheers for having me. Aha, awesome. Uh, now, we always start our podcast with one question, and that is, what was your first video game experience? Oh, first video game experience. Oh, that's, uh, I suppose if, you, if, if I'm thinking about true video game experience, it would have been in the arcades. Uh, go to, well, I live in Portsmouth now, uh, but we used to come here on holidays back in the, well, I guess uh, mid seventies, late seventies, uh, early eighties. Yeah. So my first experience would have been original arcade games like Pac Man, Frogger, uh, and Space Invaders. Basically, so you saw it from the start, did you? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, pretty yeah. much. Um, used to bunk off school to the local arcade as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Asteroids was one of my favourites. I used to, I used to be quite good at Asteroids. Back then, they were insanely busy as well, certainly mm. during the summer, because it's a holiday seaside city. Sometimes you'd have to queue up. Used to, um, I don't know if you remember this, used to uh, put your 10Ps on the machine. Yeah, uh, line them up. That's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like snooker style. Like, or pool tables, yeah. Yeah, sadly, the last time I went down to the arcades, it was mostly fruit machines. There's very few kind of traditional arcade machines down at our... Mm. Uh, seafront arcades now a couple of big um quite nice to go back there a bunch of like um what was it daytonas i think still there oh yeah um, that's good links these days mm. yeah and the, the sit on super hang-ons they were quite fun to uh fun to still play so i still got a fondness for the arcades you know yeah have you been to a arcade club yet or, or any of these new places no i haven't sadly no it's not something um one day, one day, hopefully. <laughs> I'm the same. So what was your first home computer or home system? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, I remember that very vividly. That was uh, ZX81. I mean, that was kind of what got me into computers. Shortly before that, I actually had the little white Sinclair programmable calculator. Mm. Ah, but yeah. you wouldn't really class that as a home computer. But that was probably the first thing that I actually, that was like a light bulb moment for me. Yeah. Uh, having a calculator that you could program and 
just make it do stuff that it wasn't supposed to do. Uh, so that was my first experience of programming, I guess. Uh, but the ZX81 was by far, it was the first time I started playing, typing in listings for magazines. Uh, and it was what I cut my teeth on learning machine code as well. What what kind of titles were you playing? Were you uh, getting on like Colossal Caves and uh, 3D Monster Maze and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, 3D Monster Maze, definitely. I, I very much remember playing that uh, and really, really enjoying it. Uh, I mean, it's tricky. I remember playing another one I got heavily into. I don't know if you remember, there was a... Uh, there was actually a flight simulator on the mm. Spectrum. I think it was actually by Sinclair. It's one of the official Sinclair titles. It, it was just called Flight Simulator, wasn't it? I think it was, and yeah, and it was pretty much just a horizon line tilted with um, a bunch of really badly drawn uh, dials and things in the obviously classic ZX81 blocky style. Uh, and I remember thinking that was amazing as well, you know, having a computer that could basically do that. So did you join any sort of like local user groups or anything? Or was it just solely this kind of bedroom programming from magazines? How did it kind of evolve? Yeah, that came a little bit later. There was a there was a local computer club that got set mm. up. That was probably later than the 81. I must have had a spectrum, I think, at that point, because I also remember there was people there with Commodores and Dragon 32s. So it would have been that kind of era. Uh, but yeah, that was that was fantastic for you know, and then that's when you kind of realised there was like-minded people, and it wasn't just you sitting in your bedroom. So yeah, yeah, that was cool. And we also had a, I helped run a computer club at school as well. Yeah, which uh, which seemed to go pretty well. We um, we back then we didn't really have a computer course. As mm. it, were. it was just the, the maths teacher got it dumped on him because he was the closest thing to being a... <laughs> <laughs> closest thing to computers was maths, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he was kind of clearly a little bit out of his depth. Mm. So a bunch of us just decided to... And we got... The school got given... Uh, we, we had some old pet Commodore yeah. pet computers. Mm. And I think a BBC later... Yeah, we did have a BBC later on because we used to hammer the def- version of Defender on that. Uh, I mean, a bunch of VIC-20s as well, which was uh, something else I got quite into of writing one of my very first games I ever wrote was on the VIC-20. And how how were your kind of like gaming programming skills at that point? How, how, what was the kind of transition in that? You know, you mentioned earlier on the light bulb moment with the calculator, but at what point did you start programming games and thinking, actually, these are quite good? Uh, well, I wouldn't say they were quite good. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it would have been the computer class. I think the very mm. first thing I programmed was a, a little... No, the very first thing I ever programmed on the VIC-20 was a very basic fruit machine, a three-reel fruit machine, which is kind of gamey. And then shortly after that, I wrote a... It was kind of based on an arcade game where, where you had a little spaceship that you thrusted up. It was almost a bit like Frogger. You had a spaceship yeah. at the bottom and you thrusted up through some... Uh, asteroids that were slowly moving to the left and right and you had to avoid them and you had to dock yeah. with something at the top uh, and then you drifted back down and you had to land safely at the bottom. You just did that over and over again and it got the, the asteroids got faster and faster and that was called Viglix and uh, I've still got that as a printed listing. Well, kind of like talking of those days and uh, stuff like Frogger as well, what, what was it like kind of seeing the arcade ports and... Uh, were you thinking, oh, this is nothing like the real one, or was it like, wow, this is a, a, a complete port? Uh, yeah, that's a good, a good question. I mean, in those kind of cases, you just, I mean, you knew, particularly when I was doing something like um, Alter Beast on the Spectrum, 
you just knew that they, you were never going to be to do it perfectly. I mean, that was mm. absolutely out of the question. Full screen scrolling, massive sprites, you know, loads of color all over the place. The arcade game had hardware for uh, sprite manipulation and, and scrolling. So, I don't know, you, ju you just kind of did the best you could. I was, all, I was always very proud of our type on the Game Boy. I think we did a really, really good job of that. Talking of the Spectrum, what, what kind of drew you to it? Was it like your history of Sinclair and, you know, you had these other machines around you as well, like Commodores and the BBC. What what really appealed about the Spectrum to you? Yeah, I definitely had a, more of an affinity with the Sinclair machines than I did. I mean, much I enjoyed the Commodore and the the Vic. I I know it was... um. One thing I've always loved about Spectrum and still do was the, if anything, it was the lack of things like hardware support for sprites and scrolling. And the fact you had to do literally everything yourself. Uh, and I, I love just having that blank machine. Uh, and I think that's also why the Spectrum ended up doing some crazier stuff than you would see on, say, a Commodore, because mm -hmm. the programmers were forced to think outside the box and make it do weird stuff so how did you actually get your kind of industry start you know what was your first published game and how how did it come about yeah that 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 story uh, goes back to the computer club we were going to yeah the local portsmouth computer club uh and a couple of uh local heroes uh from mel croucher and uh christian penfold from automata mm -hmm. uh they used to attend i'd actually met them slightly before uh, i don't know maybe a year or so beforehand because they yeah. used to have a little computer shop where they sold ZX81 games as well. Uh, and I bought a couple off them. So I was kind of aware of them. Uh, and I think as well, you know, looking back, and I think I've had this conversation with Mel as well, they used to kind of hang around the computer club in the hope that they would spot some talent. One year they ran a Easter competition to write a some kind of Easter game or piece of software. Uh, and only two people entered, myself and a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my friend, uh, who actually did the graphics for Piebald and Pioneer, he wrote a little, kind of almost little little movie, short movie, because he was more of an animator and artist, and I wrote the game Bunny, which is just a terrible, terrible game. Uh, <laughs> they seemed to like it, and they bought it off me and mm. published it and uh, that was so that was my first actual published game and it felt amazing at the time you know i was yeah i was what you know 15 or maybe 16 mm. got huge got paid a huge 25 quid for it <laughs> uh, but yeah so that was that was what set me on the path well uh you mentioned mel there as well when we've had a mel croucher on the show before and he's he was boss of automata wasn't he and uh yes he was he, he was totally out there with design and stuff like some really amazing stuff. Did he act as a bit of a kind of mentor to you? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I told because um he still lives around the corner for me, and we meet up every now and again. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you're right. He's a he's just a genius, uh, and I think he's sadly a little bit underrated. He doesn't get the credit he deserves for some of the stuff he was pulling off back in those days, things like Deus Ex Machina, or sorry, mm. Deus Ex Machina, as, I, as it should be called. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely looked up to him. And, um, yeah, he was a huge influence on me in the early days, definitely. Uh, and there's something, even though, you know, I've written many, many games, and I do, you know, one of, 
the automata things as well. Mel would never write a violent video game. Yeah. And that's always stuck, even though I, I've got to admit, obviously I have written quite a few violent video games, but it kind of always sticks with me. And I always think the violence maybe needs to be justified and, you know, you know just not just violence for violence sake. So, you know, I even, I even think about those things even to this day. Yeah. It stuck with you. Mm. Did, did you ever tune into any of Mel's um, pirate broadcasts where he was he was sending out uh, Spectrum games on the airwaves? No, sadly, I only kind of found out about that um, a bit a bit too late. I think he was doing that maybe before I met him. Uh, but so no, the first I experienced was when he when they released. I don't, I don't know if you remember on the ZX eighty one. It's called the they did there was the Holy Bible mm. and there was another game. Uh, and they were all little compilation games that were all just silly little games, almost like WiiWare type things. Yeah. E- even then, obviously ahead of his time. Uh, Can of Worms was another one as well. That was it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. You've got it. That's the one I was thinking of, Can of Worms. I think that was probably the very first one I bought. Uh, and, you know, and stuff like, you know, when he did Pymania and gave away the um, the sundial. I remember seeing the sundial in his office. He used to have it in a glass cabinet. Before, before before the uh before the people won it so um after you did bunny what kind of happened next you know how did you kind of get hired by automata like you know what happened there did you finish school and kind of fall straight into it what were the highlights uh yeah it was, it was a little bit like that and we, we we weren't technically hired i just used to me and my mate used to go away and basically write a game yeah and then we'd take it back to them and they would just kind of buy it off us, I think. Um, so obviously after Bunny, we did uh, Pieboard, which was the Cuba ripoff. Obviously that was back mm. in the days when you could just blatantly rip off an arcade game <laughs> <laughs> and nothing would get done about it. So we did. Uh, so yeah, that one, yeah, we just went away, you know, kind of got our heads together and decided what we wanted to write. So we put together Pieboard, took it back to them and they said, yeah, yeah, we'll take that one off your hands as well. And that was the first time I started to get royalties. So it was a small upfront payment. And then once the game made that back, then there was a, a small, you know, a few royalty checks came in on that. And it was still not enough to what I would call a career. Nowhere near. And I was actually still at school at that point as well. I was doing uh, sick form education. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I was doing sick form education, also working in retail just mm. to just to – make enough money to just get some pocket money and trying to do the video game stuff on the side. Uh, but yeah. And then after that, the pieball seemed to do quite well. Then we did, uh, sorry, pioneer pieball did, did quite well. Then we did pioneer, which was the mm. dig dug ripoff. Uh, and we spent quite a lot of time doing that when it had a lot of levels, you know, we kind of thought we'd try and write something a bit bigger with a much larger scope, but that game didn't sell anywhere near as well. So it kind of trickled off a little bit after that. And I, that was the last game I did with Mail and Automata. Why did you end up going to Martech then? Was it, was that just a reason and the kind of opportunity arose? Yeah, kind of. Well, there was a, what, what happened there was I, I almost, after we, after Automata finished, I wrote a game called uh, The Colorscape, which was one of my crazy versions of life. You wear John Conway's life. Uh, the Game of Life. Yes, the, yeah, The Game of yeah. Life. Yeah, it's like a pattern generator type thing. And it's something I've always been fascinated. So I built a game around that called The Colorscape. And I tried to, I sent it off to 
all the big publishers at the time, Quicksilver, Electric Dreams, uh, and didn't get anywhere at all with it. So I was I was kind of, you know, I was kind of just bumming around, not really doing a lot. And then I bumped into an old school friend called David Wainwright, uh, and he had a company called Catalyst Coders, uh, and he offered me a just a full-time job. So I jumped at the chance there, and that's when we started doing the games for Martech. Uh, the first one was Tarzan. Uh, so that was when I that was technically when I when I started doing it as a full time job. I'd left school at that point, uh, and he, you know, monthly wage, paycheck, brilliant, living the dream. At that yeah, point. yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and you ended up working on a few licensed titles, and like they were for two thousand AD as well. Which, as I'm talking to you, my shelves are actually full of two thousand ADs, even including some of the old seventies. Um, original, you know, 10p paper ones. Oh, brilliant, um, brilliant. Yeah, what was it like working on that and uh, doing like Nemesis the Warlock and stuff? Oh, that was amazing. You know, much I enjoyed doing. I mean, it's weird thinking about that, you know, we did such a big license at like Tarzan as well, but mm. uh, I wasn't, you know, massively interested in the Tarzan franchise. But we were talking to Martek uh, and they were asking, they, they, they kind of asked us, what we thought might be good licenses to pursue. Um, mm. we, we were all 2000 E fans and myself in particular, I'm, I'm like, I'm sadly, I don't have any of my original 2000 E's, but I was like yourself. I was in there from the beginning. You know, I remember buying issue one and, you know, Nemesis was one of my favorite characters as well. So we basically asked Martech if they could approach, approach them and get the license. And um, yeah, they did. I think I think they were like passed down in generations from where we were. So you know, I got all my older brothers' two thousand ads, and then it 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 kind of continued. And it was like a real British cult kind of identity as well. And like, um, you know, instead of just uh, the the kind of arcade copies that you made, was it was it good to be you know doing something that really felt um, iconic? Oh, oh, absolutely. And it was you know so proud to be to work on something like that as well. I mean. And, you know, I think we did a good job of Nemesis of Warlock. It still gets talked. It's one of those games that still gets talked about these days with the, you know, we had the thing where you could pile the bodies up and jump up on the bodies. And Dave did some amazing artwork and animations for it. And it just made you want to, you know, personally as well, made me want to write the best game I could. Because I didn't, mm. I, wanted, I wanted to do it justice. I really did. So one of your best known titles, which you also did at Martech, was Rex, which... Yep. I just love the look of Rex. I love how metal it is. Um, and it's often regarded as one of the best and toughest Spectrum games. What's the story there? Uh, yeah, well, that was another funny one. That was because obviously Rex was the last game we did for Martech. We'd finished the, or I'd finished the Fury, I think. Because mm-hmm. that was, uh, the, it was the three of us used to work for Martech. We had the company called Creative Reality. There was myself, Dave Jew and Neil Dodwell. And I'd just finished Fury and Neil and Dave were working on something called the Circus Game, which sadly never came out. Mm. Uh, and it was it was getting very, very late as well. That was one of the other that was one of the reasons why it never ended up getting released. But we were due to go up to Martech and we were kind of convinced we were just gonna get the boot. Mm. And I put together this very quick little demo. Uh, we called it the Peeps game. And it was just a single, mm. it was a single screen and it was just loads of little stick men all jumping about the screen with you controlling the main character, just blasting the crap out of all of them. Yeah. 
And that was the prototype for Rex. Uh, so we took that up to Martech with us. Again, we got, mm. we got a right bollocking because Circus Games was very late and Fury, mm. Fury hadn't sold that well. And we showed them the Peeps game and uh, they were amazed. So they said, oh, yeah, you know, carry on, finish that off. And then that turned into Rex. Uh, yeah, going for it was called Zenith for a little while as well. That's uh, also very metal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. It was, it, it was called that until obviously um, we realised there was a huge double glazing company called Zenith. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't as metal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it's exactly. Class. It's class. Yeah. Well, obviously at the time I probably would have been li- listening to loads of metal, so that's probably yeah. That's probably seeped into it. Definitely. I, I was going to say, did did you know your own kind of personal interests kind of seep into the game there? Because obviously, you know you. 2000 AD with Nemesis the Warlock and even Fury, they've all got that kind of metal look about them. Was was that a lot of your doing? Yeah, I think it was. You know, I've, this, I've, I've always been a huge fan of music, um, mm. you know, listening to and playing. But And, you know, and music, the music, uh, the metal genre in particular. I grew up on 80s thrash music, you know, Extreme yeah. Noise Terror and Napalm Death. Yeah. All that kind of extreme stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it seeped into it. And certainly with Rex, because another thing that I've – I would call myself a bit of an old hippie as well, mm. pacifist, um, and that was definitely something I wanted to get into Rex with the kind of the semi-political views in it, mm. where Rex was – you know, where the humans were the, the, the baddies effectively ruining, mm. ruining the planet, and Rex was the saviour. Well, a, a, a quite metal character as well was slain, and um, that that game was quite unique because it had this like menu system, and you know, kind of a, a, a bit of real time pressure going on there, and it, you know, being like time sensitive as well. Um, how did you go about, you know, converting that from a, a comic into a into quite a unique game? Yeah, well, again, that was another odd one, and something I still look back on and can't believe that we were allowed to do was just to take these ideas and run with them ourselves. I mean, MarTech never stipulated what kind of game they wanted. Uh, and even 2000 didn't seem overly precious in what we were going to develop for them. I wanted to do something very different to everything we'd done before. I, I didn't want to do a shooter. I didn't want to do a platformer. And also, obviously, the I felt that the, the whole slain uh, mythos would lend itself to an adventure game uh, and almost so because under the hood it's technically a, just a text adventure yeah yeah uh, even all the combat underneath is rolling dice it's just you don't get to see it which thinking back is maybe a bit of a shame maybe it's something that should have been you know i i think back on slain and how i might do it differently now quite a bit actually because it's um you know it's a game that gets talked about quite a lot in equal measures of being groundbreaking and a bit rubbish basically uh, it, 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 yeah i really enjoyed it and i i thought it was it was kind of like a, a text adventure with added graphics and uh kind of the best animation you could kind of do on a on a spectrum you know? uh, well thanks that's kind of exactly what we we're going for i mean i grew up as well i was always a huge fan of adventure games particularly text adventures like the the old infocom games and colossal adventure and snowball on the spectrum uh and of course when things like the hobbit came along with the uh with the graphics that was quite an eye-opener as well so you know i was clearly trying to do something along those lines yeah i think i think some of it got 
pulled off. You know, we pulled some of it off. It's got some very interesting ideas. And it's one of those games that might work much better nowadays with a, a mouse and keyboard kind of thing. Uh, and what we were also trying to uh, get across was the the fevered mind of the Berserker, which was obviously a mm. big part of the comic books. Yeah. And that was the whole idea of all these thoughts popping into his head and you having to frantically juggle them and pick what you want to do. And even a simple act like picking up an object, picking an object off the ground isn't a simple matter for somebody who's got a fevered brain. Uh, the other nice thing about Slain, I got to talk in person to one of my heroes, Pat Mills. Oh, wow. So uh, I was lucky enough, uh, it, just over the phone, I phoned him up a couple of times and we just had a chat. He, I, run, I ran the ideas that I had for the game past him and he seemed very, very into the idea. He was, that was really cool for me personally. Our, our next question kind of leads on from what Ravi was saying about, you know, how beautiful your games look and, you know, how a lot of your games really push the spectrum to its limits. You know, did you, was there many technical challenges with you working on a spectrum, avoiding things like harsh colour clashes? Because, like, a lot of your games are really colourful and, you know, and bright. Yeah, well, working on the spectrum was always a challenge with mm. any of those titles. But that was, that, that was another aspect that I found a lot of fun. You know, mm. uh, and obviously I can't take all the credit for how they look. That was a lot of that was, most of that was Dave Jew, you know, fantastic graphic artist. Uh, but yeah, particularly games like Rex, I'm very proud of the way uh, I managed to do a full screen, uh, non non color clash game with Rex. And even with mm. um, even with my version of Rex Next, I'm using all the same methods. I I haven't used any original code, mm-hmm. uh, but I've used all the original methods I did back in the old days in the new game. So I'm doing everything exactly the same way. That's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's been really cool. I've been really enjoying going back and getting stuck into yeah. what was at eighty again. Speaking of technical challenges, you know, you mentioned it earlier on. You worked on the Spectrum version of Altered Beasts. Mm. How did you make that possible on the Specy? Oh, do you know what? Sometimes I think I've no idea. That was that game was a bit, <laughs> that, that game was a bit of a blur. It was a very um, fever dream. <laughs> yeah, it was. That was, um, uh, and I I I try and. Um, I, I try and not focus on the negative, but sadly, Activi- that was obviously an Activision game. They weren't a great company to work for. It was a very, very short development time. It just went so quickly. Uh, and I ended up crunching over Christmas as well. So there's a lot of kind of bad memories about that game. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think, again, it was just, I think by, because that was my final Spectrum title, I think by that yeah. time, I you know, really got to grips uh, with the, the way the hardware worked, but for the life of me, I can't really remember how I did the full screen scrolling with the big sprites. I mean, that game had a hell of a lot of color clash, so we we clearly didn't solve that problem. Well, was there like a lot of crunch with licensed games? Was there a lot of like pressure and you know time scale really just to get it out? Yeah, not not even just with the, all the licensed game. There was just this crunch was a lot heavier back then. Anyway, you know, it's uh, it's another thing. Obviously, nowadays things are a million times better in that respect. Oh, you know, crunch still does go on. But yeah. back, then, back then, sadly, it was just expected and you just did it and got on with it. You just, Yeah, it was just expected of you, kind of, it is what it is kind of thing. That's right, yeah. yeah. So after that, you started working on quite a few Game Boy titles. Mm. As a platform, was it an easy transition? Because obviously it's an, it's an 8-bit machine, but 
you know, it's it's com- I'm guessing it's completely different hardware. What what was that like moving to the Game Boy? Well, actually, that was that was easier than you imagine for, for, for mm. me. It was because uh, even though it is completely different hardware, it's still as you say, it's an eight bit machine, mm. and it's still Z eighty, so it's still the same processor and still the same machine code as mm. as a Spectrum. So I made a transition across to that. Well, mm. that, that seemed to go quite well. I mean, you had the added bonus or bonus or hindrance of uh, hardware sprites and scrolling. That was all new to me. I'd never really worked on a machine that did that. Uh, so that was that was fun. But again, that was another another really nice title for me to work on because uh, coming from the arcades, I was a huge fan of the R-Type arcade game. Mm. So when I got the opportunity to work on that, I just instantly said yes, not even thinking about whether I could do it or not. Or It was yeah. just, I want to make that game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that leads into, you know, the kind of the next chapter, I guess, of your career. So... You know, you you ended up working on some really, really big licenses, some of the biggest licenses in the world at the time, you know, Terminator 2, mm. R-Type, Alien 3, um, which we'll go into a little bit of detail in a moment. But how how did that kind of come about with your career? What what What's the story there? What happened? Yeah, well, that was just another case of um, we'd done our last work with MarTech. Uh, Dave and Neil had gone off. They, they carried on with Creative Reality. Mm. And they went on to make Dreamweb after that. I don't know. Oh, that's a fantastic kind of gothic title as well. That one. Yes, yeah, exactly. I I was a little bit involved in that right at the very start with the with the kind of the early concepts, but then uh, we parted ways. Nothing bad. We just you know kind of drifted apart. And I mm. uh, I was working because with Altered Beast, I was working with an agent called Jackie Lyons. Who was, mm. who was getting me work. She got me that deal because obviously that was after MarTech. Uh, and then it went a little bit quiet and I didn't really do much. I just bummed around for six months or so. Mm. And I got a call from Jackie that Foo from Bits wanted a programmer to work on the, the Game Boy R-Type. So I, you know, I went up to London, met him, and uh, literally came away with a dev kit and had to write a demo within a week. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. So I came back. We put this demo together. I went back and worked with a guy called Mark Jones, mm. the artist who I'd worked with before on a couple of titles. War was one of them for Martech. Mm. And obviously mm. we worked together on Alter Beast, so I knew Mark mm. quite well. We worked yeah. well together. And he was really, really good at arcade licenses. He was brilliant mm. at copying graphics onto another system. That was kind of his forte. So, yeah, so um, that was – and then we managed to pull off R-Type, I think, and then I got a permanent job of bits. I was going to say, so was R-Type first? Did that come before Terminator 2 then, did it? It did, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Although, again, these again because these things used to happen so quickly, the kind of a funny story there as well. I finished R-Type, and then right off the back of R-Type, I remember also interested in a version of R-Type 2. So I did a prototype demo – of one of the levels for R-Type 2, uh, and then Bits took that away to IREN to pitch it to them. But in the meantime, I got the deal for Terminator 2, T2. Yeah, so yeah. I started on that, and then, then about halfway through doing T2, they got the go-ahead for R-Type 2, but obviously I was writing Terminator 2. So then that's why Bob Pape ended up doing R-Type 2 and not yeah. me. And, oh, R-Type was a bit of a kind of... 
arms race back then. It was like to, who could do the best version of our type on on which system. So to kind of get it on the Game Boy and get it running well uh, must have been quite an achievement. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, it was a tough job to do. I also heard something along funny thing about you saying that as well. I don't know whether this is true or not, but one of the things I heard through bits through the rumor mill was the 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 original uh, R Type Game Boy was passed mm. was um, offered to a lot of Japanese and American companies, and they all turned it down because they said it'd be impossible to do on the Game Boy. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, bits. Um, Bits picked it up and said, "Yeah, we'll do that." And then, you know, I ended up doing it. But I, you know, I kind of hope that's true. It'd be it's nice to think that it's that's a true story and that we mm. pulled off the impossible that nobody else would tackle. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, one of the other big licenses, you know, like we said, the next game you worked on was Terminator Two for the Game Boy. Couple of questions I want to ask here. So, did you kind of get to see the arcade game because of obviously what you kind of pulled off on the Game Boy? You look at it and it is the Terminator 2 arcade game, but running on the Game Boy, you know, how was that? And also, what's the story behind the the banks for Sarah Connor? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, everybody loves that story. Um, yeah, to answer your first question, uh, yeah. no, no, we didn't. I didn't. Do you know what? I didn't even know there was an arcade game. That's actually news to me now. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, obviously, no. there's the puzzle elements and stuff, but the. Uh, the arcade game was just shooting. Shoot, it's a shooting section. Yeah. It's like a shoot the screen, um, oh. but like you know, there's a lot of bits where you've got to protect John Connor from the Terminator chasing him and stuff, and you know you've got to shoot at the screen. So it looks like it transitioned really well. So that's really interesting that you didn't know that. All right, I suppose I'm guessing what happened there then, because uh, we worked off a script. We that's mm. all, that's excuse me, that's all we had was a, just a mm. paper script. Yeah, uh, and, and even that wasn't final because i've got a, i've got an old script where the ending is actually different from the film oh wow oh no sorry no scratch that it was alien 3 that they changed because the uh, alien 3 got rewrote a million times it did. <laughs> and they changed the end of alien 3 because of the end of t2 because they were both deemed too similar oh okay uh, uh, yeah because in the sorry i'm digressing a little bit now it's all right no it's, an, it's really interesting for me <laughs> yeah so i, I, I obviously you remember the end of Alien Three, where yeah, they she drop, jumps in. Yeah, they they, they drop the they drop the Queen in the the kind of the liquid metal pit. Yeah, and then, it, then it jumps back out. But in the original script that I had, it just fell in the pit and died, mm. which of course is quite similar to the end of T Two, where he yeah. just where he you know he drops down into the uh, molten into the molten metal. <laughs> yeah, metal. Yeah, so that's why they changed the end of Alien Three, apparently. Oh. It, it didn't give a thumbs up, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> it should have done that. <laughs> that would have been brilliant. That would have been brilliant. But, and um, sorry, yeah, yeah, with the yeah with the T two, we just um, yeah we worked off script. So I imagine mm. maybe the arcade game had the same script. So we both came to the similar conclusions about yeah, uh, you know, having the protection bits, the, the scene with the truck mm. going down the uh, slipway chasing mm. a motorbike you know that's because yeah. I, I just went through the script and i thought that'll make a good level for a game that'll make a mm. good level for a game um, yeah and, and again even back then it's again it's kind of crazy the the film company didn't say okay you have to do a side scroller or you have to do this or you have to do that they just 
They just let us they, run with our own ideas. And um, um, what would they do? They would just send you the script. Would they send you some some you know kind of like photos of the film sets so you get an idea, any sort of artwork or anything like that of what to make the characters look like? Because obviously, mm-hmm. you know, in your in your Game Boy version of Terminator Two, there's some really good, you know, kind of like I, I don't even what you want to call them, but you know, drawings, Cameron's pictures, thing, yeah. characters. You know, you know, of Sarah Connor and you mm-hmm. know of Arnold Schwarzenegger and. Um, I think what Robert Furlong as um, John Connor, you know, they they look like how they look just like how they do look in the film. You know, how does that come about? Yeah, that that was purely as you say. We would have had because uh, the film wasn't out. When, yeah, you know when we actually but made the game because uh, mm. we were lucky enough. We used to get to go to um, little screenings uh, just before the film was released. Yeah, uh, you know, to the public, mm. a little cinema in Soho, if I remember correctly, which mm. was quite nice. Uh, but yeah, so we would have just had some photographic material of all the actors and may, maybe mm. some of the sets as well, possibly, you, mm. know, you know, little bits and bobs like that. But mm. nothing, nothing, we didn't have an awful lot. Yeah. But yeah, and you mentioned about Sarah Connor's bangs. That was the, yeah. <laughs> that was the ongoing battle with her. Yes. Yeah, so we got a, it was, you know, getting it towards the end and it, the game was in testing. And, mm. and that was because that was the only time the film company got involved when it was to do with the images mm. of their stars. Mm. I don't think they cared about what was in the game, but they cared that their actors and actresses were all mm. portrayed it, correctly. They cared that it looked like the game so people would look like the film, so people would go watch the film and buy the game. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we got this uh, email back saying, oh, Sarah Connor's bangs aren't big enough. Uh, so, and our because uh, the artist on that game was um, a guy called Martin Wheeler. Mm. So we just—that's that, the American word for a fringe, isn't it? It yes. is. But, yes. But, yeah, yeah. But we didn't know that at the time, being English. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, so we made her boobs bigger and sent <laughs> sent the image back, and they went, "No, no, no, they're still too small." So we made her boobs bigger. <laughs> and this went on about three or four times. And by the end, oh, I mean, she looked like Dolly Parton. It was ridiculous. And they hadn't spotted that. All they, you know, clearly all they were doing was looking at her hair. Mm. Uh, and then I can't remember what happened, but they, they, they must have finally said, no, it's her hair that we want changed. Mm. And then obviously it suddenly occurred to us that, and then we looked it up and realized that bangs meant fringe. And we just brought her fringe down a little bit lower. Uh, put her breast back to normal size. <laughs> Boom, <job> done. <laughs> That's fantastic. I translation. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I absolutely love that. And what, and what I also love, going back to how you said, you know, you just kind of got the script and stuff, is mm. one of the levels in Terminator 2 for the Game Boy is where you actually have to rewire the Terminator's uh, chip in his brain, mm. which never actually made it into the end film, but made it into director's cut. And I guess that just kind of cements what you were saying about you get the script, and you go, that'll make a good level. That'll make a good puzzle. And I think yes. that's really fantastic. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so clearly that was in the script that I read. Yeah, that mm-hmm. I had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had another funny thing about the pitch. I don't know if you remember, but in Terminator 2, we never had a, I think in, in game with the cameos, because we had so much trouble with um, them having to check over all the images of the stars. Mm. That's that's why at some point you only ever, you see the back of Arnie's head not the front mm. of that, mm. because that didn't need to go through the film company mm. and all their lawyers. Because that's, yeah. I mean, you know, we have to get this game out in, you know, a matter of months. But yeah. these, these 
this this turnaround on talking to them was could be weeks on end. Mm. So you could waste like a week waiting for them to get back to you to okay one picture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of why we took a few liberties there as well. We, uh, you know, there was a mm. same kind of thing with Alien Three as well because that had a lot of um, really nice cameo pictures that Martin did mm. for the for the acts for the characters as well. Well, you also uh, worked on some Spider-Man titles as well, didn't you? Mm. Yeah, I did indeed. Again, again, that's another weird thing, you know, looking back at it. But again, obviously nowadays the Spider-Man franchise is massive, uh, and we were, and again, we were just, um, yeah, we just got uh, that one. We pretty much made up completely because there was no script, or I think they just gave us for one of them. We did one called the Sinister Six. Uh, so I think they just said, well, there's these six characters. You just got to have all the, all of those six characters in. And it was just a case of going, going through and going, okay, what locations would make a cool, cool level. That's why I, in one of the Spider-Man games, I'd spent ages doing this roller coaster level mm. where Spider-Man was hanging, using his webs to hang off, um, uh, a roller coaster carriage. Yeah. Uh, and that's purely just around what I thought would make a, an interesting level to play. Nothing to do with, you know, anything else at all. Just thought that would be cool. Uh, and I think one of the games had, might have had an oil rig. And I thought at the time, oh, an oil rig. Nobody's done an oil rig before, so I want to do that. And it's funny that you should say that because of the Sinister Six game, like you say, is it's just like, oh, you're in a factory fighting Electro kind <laughs> of thing. Um, so was there much kind of like, like you say, there wasn't, there wasn't a film to base it on anything. Did you find yourself kind of like going to the shop and buying the comics or, you know, did you just kind of go for it and just kind of, you already had an understanding of Spider-Man, so you just kind of thought that would be good? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I mean, Spider-Man's a pretty wide, you know, he's not a yeah. wide character. So, you know, I was, I, I've got to admit, at the time, I wasn't a huge fan of Spider-Man as a mm. comic book. Uh, I was more of a Batman watchman. Mm. I was, you know, more of a fan of the darker, yeah. The, yeah. the darker DC stuff. Mm. But it was still, it was a really fun title to work on. Um, and then, because mm. there was, the other thing that happened during Spider-Man, when we finished the second Spider-Man game, there was talk. Uh, and I think I think this was a proper, I think there's still, there's stuff on the internet you can find out about it now, but James Cameron was going to do a Spider-Man film. After he, he was. Finished, yeah, yeah. After, after he finished Terminator 2. Yeah. And we were kind of penciled in to do the video game for that, if the mm. film came about. But obviously, sadly, mm. the film, uh, you know, fizzled out for whatever reason. So we never got to work on that. But that would have been quite cool as well. Yeah, that would have been really cool to see. Yeah. Would have been cool mm. to see the film as well. So um, we already spoke about Alien 3. Mm. Um, and obviously, you did the port for it. Alien 3 came out on every console at the time. Sega Mega Drive, SNES, everything. But I think the Game Boy version was the only version where we did the top-down view. And it was really different to what the console versions got. And, you know, the console versions kind of get ripped on these days for being very difficult games and, you know, being very samey. What was the development like for the Game Boy game? You know, did you did you just, once again, did you just get given the license and go, go for it, this is what you, what game can you come up with for the Game Boy? Or was it, did you get to see what they were working on and then you had to try and port it? Uh, no, no, not at all. And again, that one had a rather unusual development cycle. Mm. What happened with that? This was another case of I think I'd finished. I think I must have finished either one of the Spider-Man games or Terminator mm. Two, and the Alien Three pitch was coming up. So I put together again a very quick prototype, and it was it was the top-down view, uh, and I was very adamant 
not to do another side-scrolling game because mm. you know, Terminator Two, the two Spider-Man games, they were all kind of similar, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I was just keen to get away from that, uh, so I said, "No, I want to do a top-down game for that." And um, mm. bits bits were cool with that, so I did this prototype, and then I think I went off and did the second Spider-Man game, uh, and then again the actual go-ahead came uh, came through to do the Alien Three license, but I was you know, knee deep in Spider-Man. So mm. another programmer took it on, but sadly he had a lot of health issues mm. and then ended up having to leave bits. So the, the game, his, his portion was unfinished. And then when I finished Spider-Man three, I was tasked with picking up where he had left off and finishing the game off. And I, I kind of looked, he hadn't, he hadn't really done a massive amount beyond what I'd done with the original prototype. So I just, um, it was easier for me to just chuck everything, everything in a bin and start again. Yeah. Uh, and that whole game got done in six weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote that game in six. Luckily, and, uh... Martin had all the graphics ready because he had, he, had, he had all the graphics ready for, you know, mm. the game that was supposed to be in development. I was going to say, because it is a really nice-looking game for the mm. Game Boy. Yeah, you know, oh, Martin's a brilliant artist, yeah. Mm. yeah. Oh, that's mm. awesome. Yeah, and string, it's one of those old games. Well, I've heard a lot of people, a couple of people have said they regard it as one of the first ever survival horror games as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess there is a massive element of that. I mean, I, I, I grew up with the Mega Drive version. Um, I didn't get to see the, the Game Boy version until much later. But yeah, I can I can definitely see that, actually. Yeah, and again, it was, that, it was back to that thing. I was very keen to do something that wasn't just another shooter as well. Mm. And that's why... You know, there's you don't get that many guns in the game. It's more, mm. more and it, you know, it's it's got an adventure feel to it as well. You collecting mm. the key cards, opening the doors. There's, you know, there's some adventure elements where you. Yeah, got to- it's it's quite reminiscent to the Zelda game Link's Awakening, which is on the Game Boy. You know, it's got a similar mm. top down kind of dungeon crawling. You know, like you say, finding key cards to progress the game and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that when you die, that's it. You have to play the whole mm. game again. I mean, that mm. was that was actually more to do with the technical limitations of not having battery backup because uh, it was just well, it was just it was very expensive to have a battery in a Game Boy game. So that's why most games didn't have it. Well, on the Game Gear, you did the uh, Itchy and Scratchy game as well. What what was it kind of like working on the different system, and uh, how did you kind of go about that game, you know, uh, you were programming it. Yeah, oh dear, that was another troubled development. Now, that was uh, the Super Nintendo I did. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I did the Super Nintendo version of, well, I finished off the Super Nintendo version. I think mm. that I think that had gone through four or five programmers and they'd all ended up either quitting or moving on somewhere else or I, I, I don't really know the backstory. So I was tasked to kind of finish it the game was pretty much finished by the time i got hold of it and i just had to finish off a few of the bosses and do a few of the final bits but i had it was that was a not a very nice game to work on um and true story when they um uh, they sent me through a copy of the game after it's finished a cartridge i took it out to my garden smashed it up with a hammer oh dear <laughs> apparently they're quite rare now so i kind of regret that <laughs> yeah you could have sold that on ebay <laughs> so um you did r-type dx for the game boy color in 99 did it make life easier working on the game boy color and was it nice kind of revisiting that franchise after missing out on r-type 2 yeah i mean it was it was brilliant going back and revisiting r-type again it was that was actually quite a technically difficult game to pull off because we had to mm. fit, um uh, both Bob and I worked on that together. 
but the, the difficulty there was again because a lot of it's all to do with the, the the larger the cartridge you have the bigger the memory the more battery backup the more it costs to manufacture the cartridges mm. so they're always very keen to keep that as as basic as possible mm. so the, the trick there was i think we had to fit actually four versions of the game into one cartridge it's because there was two versions of our type of black and white traditional black and white one and a recolored one and then there was two versions of our type two the similar thing there was the original black and white one and then bob did a a much actually he, he did a much better revamped version with using the full color modes uh, but we had to we had to really do some juggling because we had to share base memory and all sorts of things going on there that was quite a tricky thing to pull off in the end but it's uh, ended up being a really nice i mean it's a, it's great to have both those games on a single cartridge well what did you think of the game boy advance when it came out uh, oh brilliant yeah i love the game boy advanced yes even though I never released anything on it, I did write two games on it. And the, the, the Game Boy Advance was a really, really nice machine to program on as well. It was um, mm. a, a chipset called uh, the RISC, which is the same thing that's in all our mobile phones these days, pretty much. Uh, yeah. another, English, another English manufactured chip. And it's a, it's, yeah. a joy to, it's a joy to work on in machine code. It really is. Arm, isn't it? Arm, that's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, arm chip, yeah. And uh, were the games that you worked on were they the classic Sega arcade titles which came on the on the bundle? Was it Outrun, um, Space Harrier? Oh well, no, actually, I kind of forgotten about that one. I didn't really do much on that one. That was a mm. another actually a guy I still work with. You know, okay, guy Steve Clark. He was the he was the lead on that. But I was just I just did a bit of helping out on that. I think I did some I did some of the kind of the the donkey work. Um, I did all the enemy wave patterns for space harrier oh that's awesome yeah which i did funny enough i did um i used an emulator running on a yeah. pc yeah uh, and i used a top a uh, stopwatch and i would and i had bits of tape on the screen uh, so i would yeah. mark, i would mark where all the enemies would and click a stopwatch and time them all i was actually going to ask did you have to you know crank out a sega mega drive or something and, and play those those old games to to do that so that's fantastic so you were you were using emulation yeah yeah, sadly for those games i don't think at the time it wasn't they didn't give you any of the data from the game so we didn't we we couldn't strip out their you know their wave datas for the enemies Mm. Uh, i also did the i think i did the ais for the outrun cars and the Mm. super hang on cars as well and Mm. possibly i did something in afterburners i can't remember but and did did you do you remember if you went back and played those as well on emulation to kind of get a feel for how those games felt or how the ai felt in them oh absolutely yeah yeah, yeah that, that that was how i worked a lot i mean mm. and also even when i did our type we didn't have an arcade machine i used to go down the arcade and just mm. play it loads literally and try and remember <laughs> it isn't it funny that 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 not a lot changed in that 10 years with these big companies asking you to do these games. I know, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it is crazy when you think about it. And what were the other two uh, Game Boy Advance titles you worked on then? Yeah, the other two, I did um, a little game called Wave Race. It was like a Micro Machines type view, top down yeah, yeah. Jet, jet ski game. Uh, really, really fun to work on. We had a um, proper four-player multiplayer that worked really well through the link-up cable. And that used to go down a storm in the office. We all used to play that and have little competitions. Mm. Uh, but sadly, um, you know, Foo and Bits tried pitching it to loads of different people, but 
just there was no interest at all. It was when um, that was also when particularly um, driving type games of very much centered around the kind of the mode seven type 3d view yeah because the, the Game Boy advance could emulate that i wouldn't use the word emulation but it it could it could copy that quite well you know because it was ultimately it was a handheld snes wasn't it yeah 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 you were absolutely right exactly so i think that i think a lot of the publishers looked at it when well, it's not 3d we'd mm. invested it's 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 kind of gone full circle now because uh you're back to spectrum on mm. the uh spectrum next we were talking about it earlier and uh what what kind of games have you been developing on there and if you've been playing around with uh well I, the only game i've been developing it has is is rex next i did um i did a little because again i'm fascinated with john conway's life the very first thing i did was did a version of life i it's one of my things i like to write that on any new system I work on. Uh, so that was the first thing I did. And then I just got stuck into doing Rex Next, basically. And I've just been kind of slowly doing that when I get a free weekend here and there. What do you think of the the Spectrum Next then? And have you seen like uh, a lot of good releases and the kind of Spectrum community, you know, coming together again? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously the retro community is always, you know, there's, there's always a lot of interest in the retro community, even if there is always the endless battle between the c64 users and the spectrum users mm-hmm. uh, and clearly the spectrum's best uh but yeah no the um you know the uh the scene around the spectrum next seems to be really really good you know they pulled off a really nice machine it works really well one thing i decided very early on was not to use any of the the hardware sprites and scrolling which i know a lot of games are used i wanted to write a traditional spectrum game on the next and i'm just using the vastly increased speed so i can do yeah. so i can just do things so it's, it's the the rex next is going to be a lot smoother faster and a lot more on screen because i can do that now because of the extra speed i have but I, it's still kind of done in that traditional manner oh yeah absolutely yeah and it won't be the run it so it, it will run on a normal spectrum but it will run really really slowly so it's it's designed to run on the next is there any sort of like kind no. of expect no. <laughs> just a weekend hobby <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd love to have a firm release date and mm. you know and you know i mean i mean it's been that the, the um the the next guys have been great there's no pressure and mm. even when i first agreed to do it they said you know this um and there's you know there's because there's there's no money involved it's a it's a labor of love and mm. like like pretty much the whole of the spectrum next was uh, so yeah, it will be it'll be done when it's done. That's yeah. sadly that's all I can say. You know, no, that's uh, fair yeah. enough. It'll, it'll probably come out maybe before Half Life Three, shall we say? <laughs> fair enough, and Left 4 Dead Three. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've just been a bit lazy there, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no, it happens. So it does. Yeah, well, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on, Jace, um, and we'll be definitely keeping out. Rex Next, keep an eye out for Rex Next. Um, but this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thanks yeah, for having me. It's been a pleasure.